The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's Friday, July 29th, 2022. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, how likely are you really to get bit by a shark? And do some of those cliche comparisons still hold up as water's warm and shark sightings seem to be on the rise? Plus, future lunar explorers could enjoy year-round sweater weather in moon caves. And murder hornets are getting a new name. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. Shark Week is in full swing, and apparently the sharks here in the New York City area got the memo, as my go-to beach keeps getting shut down due to shark sightings. Janet Fesh, who's worked as chief lifeguard at that beach for over three decades, says there have been more sightings in recent years, at least by her reckoning, and not just of sharks, but also dolphins, whales, and stingrays. She attributes it to the warmer water. And while there were two reports of non-fatal shark attacks on the same day recently on Long Island, field scientists say they don't believe there has actually been an increase in shark sightings in recent years. They say it's just that more people are looking for them, and more people have smartphones and drone cameras with which to capture footage of them. And in fact, Christopher Paparo, a naturalist who manages a marine lab at Stony Brook University, told the New York Times that if there are more sharks in the area, that's a good thing. It shows they're recovering from pollution and overfishing that reduced the global shark population by 70% since 1970. Paparo also reminded the Times that people are more likely to be killed in a car crash or while making toast than by a shark. You're also more likely to be killed by a vending machine. Or at least, so the saying goes. But how did we get that comparison, and does it still hold up? Hannah Dr. Loeb investigated this week for Slate. Now, like the making toast comparison, the point of the vending machine rhetoric was to inject both a bit of levity and a bit of disbelief into a rather grim and pervasive bit of misinformation. You know, people are scared of sharks. They're scared of getting attacked by sharks and potentially dying from that attack. Movies like Jaws have certainly not helped matters, making sharks seem to have it out for humans in particular. When, in reality, if a shark bites a human, it's probably because they mistook the human for some other prey. For the most part, if humans keep their distance, they'll be fine. And even those instances of being mistaken for another kind of prey are very low. So people who have tried to hammer home the rarity of shark attacks to fearful individuals like to come up with the most mundane or everyday ways that people do die and point out how much more frequently those deaths occur compared to death by shark attack. As Dr. Loeb summarized the explanation from shark conservation expert David Schiffman, quote, 
A silly statistic about a vending machine illustrates that while sharks can kill, seemingly anything can kill you under the exact right circumstances, end quote. And indeed, the International Shark Attack file makes good on this point by keeping a tally of shark attacks and comparing them to a number of other incidents, like by other animals or during other recreational activities, natural disasters, or home improvement mishaps, or being bitten by fellow humans in New York City. Apparently, in the 80s, there were an average of 1,500 human-biting-human incidents per year in New York City, but only about a dozen shark injuries in the entire country. Now, unlike other data on the site, that particular study hasn't been updated since the 80s, so funny as it is, we can probably set that one aside. And being out of date may be the problem with the vending machine comparison, too. Most citations for vending machine-related injuries and deaths point to a 1995 report from the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. And for the record, death by vending machine usually means that the machine fell on someone after they shook or tilted it. Not like they got stuck in it or, I don't know, got electrocuted or something. From 1978 to 1995, the CPSC reported an average of a little over two deaths by vending machine per year, plus a total of 113 injuries. Now, according to shark attack data, there was about one fatal shark attack a year in that same time period. And last year, in 2021, there was also just one fatal shark attack in the U.S., but we don't have vending machine data for 2021, and when reached for comment by Dr. Loeb, the CPSC said there hasn't been a reported vending machine death since 2008. Now, there have been thousands of emergency department visits associated with vending machines over the last decade or so, but that category broadly includes slot machines, and an overwhelming number of those incidents are people falling off their chairs while using a slot machine. So, not really the same thing as dying by having a vending machine fall on top of you, although, for what it's worth, you are apparently more likely to be injured playing a slot machine than from getting bit by a shark. Anyways, why the sudden downturn in vending machine caused fatalities? Here's Dr. Loeb's guess, quote, It might have something to do with a campaign to introduce warning signage in 1995, urging consumers to refrain from tipping the machines. Also, according to a blog post from The Vending Group, the mid-2000s saw the introduction of credit card readers on machines in order to sell higher-priced goods. With less chance of having their money eaten by the machines, snack-wanters have less reason to jiggle them in the first place. End quote. She also brings up some important caveats here. First, all of this data is a bit murky. None of it is really an apples-to-apples -apples comparison, and there could absolutely be unreported vending machine deaths. And also, crucially, each individual's chance of dying by vending machine or by shark really depends on where you are and how you spend your time. As Dr. Loeb summarizes from an old episode of Today I Found Out, quote, someone in a more rural area who hates the sea will definitely not be killed by a shark. On the other hand, those who are regular beachgoers have a higher likelihood of encountering a shark, though odds are still very, very, very low to the point of almost being zero. And if you're someone with a particular vengeance against vending machines, which we have now established as mostly gentle giants, you should be aware of the fact that they are still capable of inflicting deadly force. End quote. 
So these days, yeah, you might be more likely to die from a shark attack than a vending machine, but you're still more likely to die in a car crash than from a shark attack, or on a toilet, or via a Christmas tree. And one thing you are less likely to do than be attacked by a shark, though, win tonight's billion-dollar Mega Millions lottery draw. Americans buying one Mega Millions ticket have a 1 in 302,575,350 chance of winning. That's versus a 1 in 4,332,817 chance of being killed by a shark, according to the International Shark File. For what it's worth, according to Gizmodo, you are also more likely to be struck by lightning, crack an egg with a double yolk, bowl a perfect game, give birth to quintuplets, and get heads 28 times in a row while flipping a coin, then win the Mega Millions. Though, given New York's current rush of shark sightings, and the fact that New Yorkers have won the Mega Millions jackpot more than any other state, I wonder what the odds are that someone here could get bit by a shark on Rockaway Beach this afternoon and go on to win the Mega Millions tonight. If we ever have some sort of lunar base, it might be less of a shining city on a hill and more an underground bunker. That's because NASA-funded planetary scientists working at UCLA have just discovered that some of the pits and caves on the moon are in a perpetual state of sweater weather. So, on most of the moon's surface, the temperature slingshots between 127 degrees Celsius, or 261 degrees Fahrenheit, and minus 173 degrees Celsius, or minus 279 degrees Fahrenheit. Those extreme temperatures come during the day and night, respectively, and a moon day and night equals about 15 Earth day and nights. So to protect both people and equipment on the moon for an entire lunar day and night, the longest astronauts have been on the moon previously is just under three Earth days, everything would have to be designed to withstand both extreme temperatures. The sheer amount of energy required for thermal regulation alone would be astronomical. So ever since these mysterious moon pits were first discovered in 2009, scientists have wondered if they might be able to function as some sort of shelter. The original thinking was that they could protect astronauts and their gear from solar radiation, cosmic rays, and micrometeorites. But as it turns out, they might also protect from the extreme temperatures, and maybe better than we would have anticipated. The UCLA researchers used images captured by NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter's Diviner Lunar Radiometer Experiment Thermal Camera to gauge the temperature inside one of these pits. Quoting NASA, Focusing on a roughly cylindrical 328-foot deep depression about the length and width of a football field in an area of the moon known as the Mare Tranquillitatis, UCLA doctoral student Tyler Horvath and his colleagues used computer modeling to analyze the thermal properties of the rock and lunar dust and to chart the pit's temperatures over time. The results revealed that temperatures within the permanently shadowed reaches of the pit fluctuate only slightly throughout the lunar day, remaining at around 63 degrees Fahrenheit or 17 degrees Celsius. If a cave extends from the bottom of the pit, as images taken by the LRO's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter camera suggest, it too would have this relatively comfortable temperature. End quote. 63 degrees Fahrenheit, 
all the time. That's like San Francisco without the annoying fog. That's like April 25th. Not too hot, not too cold. All you need is a light jacket. It's perfect. Quoting UCLA, the research team believes the shadowing overhang is responsible for the steady temperature, limiting how hot things get during the day and preventing heat from radiating away at night. Meanwhile, the sun-baked part of the pit floor hits daytime temperatures close to 300 degrees, some 40 degrees hotter than the moon's surface. Because the Tranquilitatis pit is the closest to the lunar equator, the illuminated floor at noon is probably the hottest place on the entire moon, said Horvath, end quote. Okay, so astronauts would have to be super careful just outside of the pits, but under the shadowy overhang or further in, it would be sweater weather indeed. Now, further research will need to be done to assess if there's enough space in those overhangs for a whole crew or base. Initial findings suggest yes, especially if the pits turn out to be collapsed lava tubes like we have here on Earth. As NASA explains, quote, lava tubes form when molten lava flows beneath a field of cooled lava or a crust forms over a river of lava, leaving a long, hollow tunnel. If the ceiling of a solidified lava tube collapses, it opens a pit that can lead into the rest of the cave-like tube. Two of the most prominent pits have visible overhangs that clearly lead to caves or voids, and there's strong evidence that another's overhang may also lead to a large cave. End quote. As co-author David Page puts it, quote, Humans evolved living in caves, and to caves we might return when we live on the moon. End quote. Now, at the moment, NASA has no concrete plans to construct a lunar base on the actual surface of the moon, though they are planning an orbiting outpost. However, the CHIPS Act, which just passed in the U.S. Senate and House, includes the first substantial funding for NASA since 2017, in particular their Moon to Mars program and office. And with major funding now specifically earmarked for lunar and Martian exploration and positive findings in terms of potential shelter, some kind of outpost built on the moon, or I guess kind of in it, could be in the cards in the future. Well, I've talked a lot about murder hornets on this show, from their first appearance in the United States to the stormtrooper-looking suits used by scientists to capture them, and all the recipes you can make using the giant insects. But now, everyone's favorite doom-scrolling mascot is getting a new name— Alternately called murder hornets and Asian giant hornets, neither name quite fits. So in order to stem misinformation about the hornets and also prevent xenophobia, the Entomological Society of America has announced a new common name for the insect, the Northern Giant Hornet. As National Geographic explains, quote, The murder hornet nickname stoked fear among the public. Many native wasps were mistakenly killed, and sales of hornet-killing pesticides jumped. And the moniker never made sense, since all hornets kill prey. For these and other reasons, scientists disliked the term and avoided it. Of course, the hornets are legitimately fearsome-looking at an inch and a half in length, the largest wasps in the world. Being stung can also be fatal to 
to those with allergies and can feel like being stabbed by a red-hot needle, says Shunichi Makino, an entomologist at Japan's Forestry and Forest Products Research Institute. But its prior unofficial common name, the Asian giant hornet, also has problems. For one thing, there are other huge hornets in Asia. Several of these species are invasive elsewhere in the world. End quote. With the new name Northern Giant Hornet, the society says it's scientifically accurate, easy to understand, and avoids evoking fear or discrimination. Now, the hornets are a legitimate threat to honeybees, which is part of why scientists took them so seriously and tried to eradicate them when they entered the U.S. But much of the public mistook that zeal as the hornets being a danger to humans. People all over the U.S. killed hornets in large numbers, thinking they were northern giant hornets when the species has actually never been seen in the U.S. outside of Washington state. So entomologists hope that the name change will help stem the situation, but many are realistic about the fact that the murder hornet nickname is unlikely to go away. I mean, a name so ready-made for dystopian-tinged clickbait is going to be even tougher to eradicate than the northern giant hornets themselves. Well, that's going to be it for me for this week. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again on Monday. Have a great weekend.